This is Macro Horizons, episode 21, Another Week, Another Rally, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and the spirit of a vacationing John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 3rd. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian. That's me. Yields declined this past week. That they did. And in fact, the rally was so significant that we saw one handles on several key benchmarks. Obviously, twos, threes, fives at one point were trading below 2%. We also saw the 10-year yield drop below 225, which is obviously in and of itself constructive for our broader take on the market. The drivers behind the price action were the usual suspects, as it were, including Trump's ongoing trade war, which has expanded from the tensions that were already brewing with China to now include Mexico, as Trump announced the potential for increased tariffs to address the immigration issue. It's notable that the price action didn't steepen the curve didn't flatten the curve either. It was a parallel shift for the most part in rates. We also didn't see any significant confirmation in terms of the data that things are slowing. There's slightly better than expected personal spending and personal income. Core inflation increased as anticipated, although still at 1.6% year over year. Consumer confidence came in higher than expected, but that is largely attributable to the price action in the equity market that we saw last month. That said, May is going to be the first down month for equities this year. We also had a very solid reception to the two and five-year treasury auctions, although the seven-year tailed rather dramatically at 1.8 basis points. That said, these auctions came at the highs of the time, so it's not that surprising that we saw a bit of a concession for Wednesday's takedown. Now, subsequently, the market has rallied even from those levels. So again, overall, a relatively constructive take on the market. As we think about the balance of the summer, we continue to focus on the constructive seasonal impacts on the treasury market, which suggests that a drop below 2% in 10-year yields is very achievable at this point. Let us not forget what's going on in the rest of the world, in terms of sovereign debt trading at least. We saw 10-year German boon yields drop to the lowest on record at negative 20 basis points. There's an argument that this has helped support the rally in the treasury market, and we have no reason to dispute that. Although, at the end of the day, we do think the trade tensions and a dimmer global outlook are truly accountable for the lion's share of the price action. Holiday trading conditions didn't detract from the potential for the market to rally, although one might argue relatively light staffing levels reduced the willingness to fight the move. 
that suggests that the upcoming week will be a critical litmus test to this repricing toward a lower yield environment. The June FOMC meeting is also quickly approaching on the horizon. We'll hear from a variety of Fed speakers as the market attempts to gauge how quickly the Fed is going to be willing to respond to this recent series of troubling economic events. All in all, it's just another worry in the wall. So, we had a rally. Indeed we did, Ben. And it was quite a rally at that. To get 10-year yields below 225 in an environment where first-quarter GDP remains above 3% is a pretty impressive move. Now, we all know that it has to do with the escalation of the trade war, the fact that core PCE continues to underperform. But at the end of the day, with effective Fed funds still at 238, the market is telling us something. And I think that something is that the market's expectation for the Fed is getting more and more accommodative. And what I mean by that is, as you continue to see cuts priced in going forward, the simple fact of the matter is, if we continue to see data, particularly inflation, underperform, eventually the Fed's hand is probably going to be forced. Well, that's actually a very good point. And it really does come down to what will be that incremental factor that gets the Fed to ease. So we've been of the mind that it ultimately comes down to financial conditions in one way, shape, or form, and whether that is a spike in equity market volatility, the strength of the dollar importing deflation, the go-to metrics is going to continue to be FCI. On the other hand, as you point out, Ben, if the domestic data truly does start to underperform, that's going to complicate matters for the Fed even further. And as we've highlighted almost ad nauseum at this point, the inflation data is really the top tier in that regard. And just this past week, we saw the Q1 quarter over quarter core PCE print at 1.0%. And that is almost certainly one of Powell's biggest worries at this point, but not the only one. I mean, we still have the trade war continuing to ramp up with now Spanish olives in the crosshairs. Beijing is now seeming to use rare earth metals as their latest bargaining chip. And what that might imply for not only consumer sentiment, but business sentiment and what that means for investment. While it hasn't shown up in earnest yet, earlier this week, the conference board consumer optimism gauge is still quite high, not at records, but still loftier than one would otherwise assume given these escalations we've had recently. Well, part of that is going to be the fact that equities still remain relatively close to the highs. And there's a very strong correlation between equity market performance and consumer confidence. So I would argue that that actually has created a very specific set of risks for the Fed. They are implicitly worried about the ongoing performance of equities. But as we've noted in the past, equities are only where they are because the market is assuming that the Fed will be more proactive if we do see any slowdown in equities. So in a way, the equity market took Powell's pivot in January and said, thank you very much. That got us to where we are now. But it's looking like in order to take that next leg higher, stock investors are going to need something else from the FOMC. I'm more worried about preventing a sell-off requiring something from the Fed. As we look ahead to the June FOMC meeting, I struggle to see the Fed coming off more dovish than the market would like to see in the way that they managed to do at all the other meetings this year. 
And the most recent example of that is obviously the last time around we got that downward adjustment to IOER. But at the time, and Powell did an excellent job communicating this, that was really more of a front-end plumbing issue and a money markets nuance rather than an actual easing of financial conditions. And now that we see Fed funds at 238, 239, aka squarely within the middle of the target range, the necessity to do something like that again has now evaporated. So this leads us to what is the Fed actually going to be able to do at the June FOMC meeting? My expectation is we might see some of the optimism within the statement moderated on the margin. We do get an updated dot plot. So perhaps they take out that rate hike for 2020 could be. I'd be surprised if they actually introduced a rate cut in the dot plot for the out years, call it 2020 or 2021. So that leaves the equity market somewhat vulnerable. And by that, I mean, there's going to be a subset of investors looking for an actual rate cut, whether it's 25 or 50 basis points. This is evident in the futures market. We hear this anecdotally. So if Powell doesn't deliver, a rate cut, I expect we'll see risk assets come under pressure, which then conversely tightens financial conditions. So if the Fed doesn't cut, the market's going to hike. And that is in stark contrast to what we've seen so far this year. As you pointed out earlier, Powell has been able to outdove the already dovish expectations, which to your point is the reason that we've seen stocks still so close to the all-time highs. And as it pertains to financial conditions, not hiking rates is not what it once was. Staying on hold could deliver effectively the same impulse into financial conditions should we see a pickup in the VIX after a quote-unquote hawkish, even though it might be just not super dovish, read at the meeting at the end of June. The one way that I could see it coming out more dovish really does come down to the dot plot, whether it is a lowering of the long-run dots or simply an acknowledgement that we're at the end of the cycle and the next move is going to be a cut. I would expect that a significantly dovish takeaway would be more supportive for the five-year sector of the curve. I could very easily see one handles for all the major benchmarks with the exception of the 30-year. This also makes sense in the context of where we see global yields. Think Germany, Japan, Spain, France. Particularly in the front end of the curve, we have seen rates continue to drift further into negative territory. So say this all plays out as we expect it might. Tens are at 220. In the next several months, you've said a one handle is realistic. Is that going to be a straight line there? Or might we see a consolidation or drift back toward, call it 240-ish in tens? Certainly wouldn't expect it to be a direct line to call it 195. It will be a choppy move. As you point out, there'll be periods of consolidation. Sentiment is very much in favor of lower yields at this point. Clearly, we risk overbought conditions being followed by a backup in rates. Very typical trading behavior. I would add, though, that the bullish seasonal influences in the treasury market versus the bearish seasonal tendencies in the equity market really make it difficult to fade any bid in treasuries, from my perspective at least. So we used to highlight the 260, 262 level in 10s as the dip buy. Would you say that level has moved lower? I would say 240 is the new 260. So from that 240 buy, 190, 195 seems a reasonable target for 10s over the next several weeks, several months. 
Where do you envision two-year yields in that environment? Yeah, implicitly, that's a question of what is the shape of the curve going forward? We continue to favor the cyclical re-steepening of the curve. However, with a straight face, I can say, if I knew that two-year yields were going to be so close to 2%, when effective Fed funds remained at 238, I would have expected at this moment in time, the curve would be steeper than it is. Nonetheless, we're right in the middle of the trading range that's been in place all year. That's that nine basis points to 25 basis points in twos, tens. As we continue to consolidate here, I would expect more of a parallel shift in the curve until the Fed actually delivers with an insurance or a preemptive rate cut. And I think to that point that we're surprised how flat the curve has remained is another way of saying we're surprised how far tents have rallied. And I think there's two real reasons for that. First being the less than stellar GDP expectations for Q2. Most of the Fed's trackers are now in the low 1% range. And at least partially related to that is how trade war tensions have ramped back up. I mean, only a few weeks ago, the tariff situation was much more static than it is now. And look at Twitter one day and all of a sudden tariffs are rising, not only on China, but also on the EU. And that naturally is going to introduce more uncertainty internationally around growth. And the net result of that is going to be to drive 10-year yields down to where we've seen them. And at the risk of interpreting too much from the price action itself, investors and the market are saying something given the outright level of yields. And I would read it as simply a significant deterioration of growth expectations, both domestically and abroad. And to some extent, that's oversimplifying the issue. But at the end of the day, the market is betting rather heavily that the Fed is going to have to start cutting sometime soon. I was actually impressed with how well some of the recent supply events were taken down. What do you think, auction man? Yeah, I think particularly this last holiday shortened week, we saw twos and fives auctioned an hour and a half apart from each other. And the reception was nothing if not really strong. I mean, two solid stop throughs with good underlying stats reinforces this notion that we've been talking about, which is if the market is eventually playing for a Fed cut, whether it be preemptive fine tuning or the beginning of a broader easing cycle, the fact of the matter is front end and belly yields have a lot of room to fall from here. So the liquidity point of getting invested at these levels seems like a pretty compelling buy. Now that comes in contrast to what we saw on Wednesday, which was a seven-year auction that quite frankly was weak across the board. We had the largest tail for a seven-year auction since February 2016. And the bidder breakdown revealed something interesting that the direct subcomponent took a large step back. Now to me, what that suggests is the primary source of strength so far this year has been domestic investment funds. And there's been a rough correlation between the trends in direct bidding and the trends in what domestic investment funds have taken down. Now, following that logic, one could make the argument, and it's one that I think is at least mildly compelling. The first two auctions of the last week were used by some of the bigger auction players to align duration needs. And then the seven-year auction was somewhat of an also-ran. And we may have seen a few of these bigger buyers opt to take a step back there. So we've always had this perception of the seven-year sector as the fulcrum point 
in the yield curve. And by that, I mean, when we look at 10s and 30s, we tend to think inflation risks, global growth outlook. But when we look at the front end of the curve, it's primarily monetary policy expectations and to a lesser extent, the supply and demand dynamic. So a weak seven-year auction suggests, at least on the margin, that there is a strong sense that the next move from the Fed is going to be an easing campaign, but the implications for inflation and for the broader direction of the economy are still a bit uncertain, which would lead one to be a bit more apprehensive about scaling into sevens. And it's also worth noting, I think, that while, yes, the auction was weak, no matter how you slice it, Last month's auction stop was 30, yes, 30 basis points higher than this one, which speaks to the fact of how far we've come in only four weeks' time. Plus, all three of the auctions are already in the money. And outside of supply and the nominal moves over this past week, I think something that's been really interesting and troubling for Powell, I imagine, is the continued slide in break-evens. Both five- and ten-year break-evens have continued to drop from their peak set earlier this year, and given the emphasis that we've seen on not only realized inflation, but inflation expectations, this has got to be very concerning. But here, I think, Ian, you and I would both agree, when the eventual cut does come, a pickup and break even seems at least a reasonable expectation given how far they've fallen. Yeah, I would think so. The knee jerk there is going to be this notion that the Fed is actively trying to encourage inflation. Break even should outperform, push back towards the top of the range. Very, very consistent with the way inflation expectations behave at this point in the cycle. And the fact that they've fallen so far so fast feeds back into this idea that the market really isn't buying what the Fed is selling at this point. That investors are going to demand more from the committee, and the price action we've seen is investors trying to get ahead of the Fed rather than fall behind the curve. Speaking of behind the curve... John Hill, wherever you are out there, we hope you're listening and wish you were here. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of new information to digest. At the end of the day, however, we still expect that it comes down to the trade war and any further escalation, whether it's with China or with Mexico, that will ultimately dictate the near-term direction of the Treasury market. That being said, we do have the non-farm payrolls report on Friday, and in the lead-up to NFP, we'll get ADP as well as the two ISM series, which will help provide overall context for the health of the U.S. economy. It's notable that the revisions to first quarter GDP continue to show strength as real growth exceeded 3%. Inflation still not an issue, trending lower, but as we saw in Friday's core PCE print, the declines have leveled out, at least for the time being. The two-tenths of a percent month-over-month -month gain in April certainly bodes well for the direction of inflation. But at the end of the day, we really think that it's simply a drifting toward this lower inflation environment at a leisurely pace rather than a relatively quick drop that the Fed needs to respond to. Over the course of the week, we expect that we'll spend a reasonable amount of time skewing the odds in terms of what the Fed is actually going to be able to deliver via the announcement on June 19th. The odds of a rate cut are relatively low in the very near term. That being said, the futures market is currently pricing in 
roughly 48 basis points of easing. That means that the debate of whether or not the Fed will cut by 25 or 50 basis points is a moot point because both are fully reflected in market pricing. This leads us to the dot plot and how aggressive the committee is going to be in attempting to outdove dovish expectations, as they have at every meeting thus far in 2019. We would expect the ambitions for a 2020 rate hike to be taken off the table. With that, there's a reasonable argument that they should lower the longer run estimate for Fed funds. All of this would be supportive for the belly of the curve, as it implies a lower future path for rates, but doesn't deliver a near-term rate cut. So twos, fives probably flattens in that environment, and fives, tens probably steepens out, at least on the margin. Again, a very classic belly leading the price action trade. We'd also expect to see some changes to the language that acknowledge the increasing risks to the broader economy from the global trade tensions, as well as what we are or are not seeing in terms of a rebound of domestic consumption. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And a brief note, if you like tins at 3%, you'll love them at 2%. Wait, what? Right. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.